Hello and welcome. This is podcast number 13 for English 264 Online, and this episode will discuss Oscar Wilde. I had mentioned previously that the Victorian period, as normally designated, lasted from 1837 to 1901, that is, during the reign of Queen Victoria of England. But Oscar Wilde, although he lived his entire life during the reign of Queen Victoria, is in many ways a transitional figure to the modern age. Um, both in his poetry and in his prose, in his dramas, he questions many of the values and aesthetics of, of the, the Victorians and begins to point directions for artists that they then followed throughout the 20th century. So although he died in 1900, before Victoria did, he is in many ways a modern figure. He was born Oscar Fingal of Flaherty Wills Wilde, although at the peak of his popularity he was known merely as Oscar, uh, born in Dublin, Ireland, uh, his father was a doctor, his mother was a writer, an Irish nationalist. They were all Protestant Irish, uh, as opposed to Catholic Irish. He attended Trinity College in Dublin and received a scholarship to Magdalen College at Oxford University, where he studied under Walter Pater and John Ruskin during his time there. He spent much of his college days forming the persona, which would eventually be his most famous attribute, probably more famous for his personality and his wit than for anything he wrote, although he published quite a bit. He published his first collection of poems in 1881, a book of fairy tales in 1888, The Happy Prince and other tales, The Picture of Dorian Gray, his only novel, in 1890, Lady Windermere's Fan, a play, a comedy, in 1892, um, 1893 he published Salome, uh, also a play, although not a comedy, about uh, John the Baptist and Salome. And then between 1893 and 1895, a series of remarkable comedies, uh, A Woman of No Importance, An Ideal Husband, and The Importance of Being Earnest, probably his masterpiece and certainly the most produced of any of his plays after his lifetime. He was also noted as a public speaker and gave lecture tours both in England and also throughout America. Upon landing in New York City, he, supposed, he uh, is reported to have said to the customs officials, I have nothing to declare but my genius. And from that moment uh, was, a, was followed by newspaper reporters and made a sensation as he traveled across the United States, giving lectures on aesthetics and, and design principles to silver miners in Colorado. Um, he went all the way out to San Francisco and then came back. And interestingly enough, for at least our class, he came through Georgia. So he spoke in Columbus, Georgia, in Macon, Atlanta, Augusta, Savannah, uh, over a series of days in July in 1882. Although we only have two examples of his poetry, I hope you'll notice differences between his poetry and the poetry we've been reading, both Impression du Motin, Impressions of the Morning, and Symphony in Yellow. Although they mention nature and they mention the city, uh, tend to have a very objective, very distanced perspective on it. Uh, this is part of a new movement in literature known as, the, known as aestheticism. One of the principles of aestheticism was to uh, perceive objects, uh, works of art, uh, people, all as material against which you can receive impressions and which you analyze your impressions. Um, so you treat all of them as objects for consideration and reflection the main purpose being to understand better your impressions of them 
uh, how you respond to them, what, how they influence your thoughts, your memories, your feelings. Um, so in a poem like Symphony in Yellow, which registers a number of different elements and details, uh, all in, in London in a cityscape, all are more or less equal. All are um, material for his, his reflections. Also of interest, both poems register influence by art movements as opposed to uh, literary movements. Um, so that Symphony in Yellow, although the title may seem to come from a musical work, actually references the paintings of um, James McNeil Whistler. You can see an example of Whistler's work on color plate number 18 in our anthology. Um, this painting is titled Nocturne in Black and Gold, or The Falling Rocket, um, and indicates a, a shift towards what would be seen as more abstract, less representational art. Uh, although he is painting um, a fireworks display, he's also arranging colors on the campus in a way which had not been done so extensively and at such an extreme level before. Um, this work of art was very controversial. Uh, John Ruskin, in particular, thought it was inexcusable as a work of art. They um, thought it was a ridiculous to charge people for just flinging paint on the canvas. And there was a famous um, legal case, uh, case of libel, that Whistler responded to one of Ruskin's attack. While it's also perhaps in the, in the, in the other poem, referencing the French Impressionist school of painting, which again was beginning to make inroads in England and, and in many ways supplanting the Pre-Raphaelite artists, uh, the English painters, who, who had been so popular during the Middle Victorian period of the 1860s. Wilde tended to go out of his way to oppose and subvert the standard Victorian ideas and values. Uh, you can see clear examples of this in his dialogue, The Decay of Lying, uh, where he has two speakers, Cyril and Vivian, these were the names of his two sons uh, in his marriage to Constance Lloyd, although they were obviously at this time much too young to actually be the speakers of this. He was using their names. Debating a number of issues of art and nature, um, themes that had been popular and had been widespread since uh, the Romantics. So we see Wordsworth talking about many of these, but Wilde approaches them in a shockingly different way, which wasn't intentionally... Um, flagrant in its rejection of many of the assumptions. Um, for example, at the very beginning on page 831, when Cyril invites Vivian to go with him, um, let us go and lie on the grass and smoke cigarettes and enjoy nature. Uh, Vivian replies, enjoy nature? I am glad to say that I have entirely lost that faculty. People tell us that art makes us love nature more than we loved her before, that it reveals her secrets to us, and that after a careful study of Courat and Constable, we see things in her that had escaped our observation. My experience is that the more we study art, the less we care for nature. What art really reveals to us is nature's lack of design, her curious crudities, her extraordinary monotony, her absolutely unfinished condition. Nature has good intentions, of course, but, as Aristotle once said, she cannot carry them out. When I look at a landscape, I, have, I cannot help seeing all its defects. And then when Cyril said, you can lie on the grass and smoke and talk, rather than looking at the landscape. He replies, But nature is so uncomfortable. Grass is hard and lumpy and damp and full of dreadful black insects. Why, even Morris's poorest workman could make you a much more comfortable seat than the whole of nature can. It would be inconceivable to, to think of Wordsworth 
delivering these lines, or of any of the romantics making these comments, and for Wilde to, to say them even a hundred years after Wordsworth began his writing, um, suggests both how, how widespread those ideas had become and also uh, a newer generation's conscious intent to reject them. A few pages later, Vivian specifically references Wordsworth in the context of explaining his, uh, his declaration that nature is always behind the age. And he, he says, If we take nature to mean natural simple instinct as opposed to self-conscious culture, the work produced under this influence is always old-fashioned, antiquated, and out of date. If, on the other hand, we regard nature as the collection of phenomena external to man, people only discover in her what they bring to her. She has no suggestions of her own. Wordsworth went to the lakes, but he was never a lake poet. He found in stones the sermons he had already hidden there. He went moralizing about the district, but his good work was produced when he returned, not to nature, but to poetry. Now this, uh, this statement is somewhat typical of Wilde's style of using witty constructions and paradoxes, um, statements which seem to be the opposite of reality, but which nevertheless contain an element of reality in them. Uh, Wordsworth, for example, in Tintern Abbey, says that he half perceives and half creates the events around him, uh, and so helps to substantiate this claim, although, as typical of Wilde, he takes his, uh, his statements much further than, one, than practically anybody else might. Wilde poses another paradox some pages later, on 839, when he claims, through Vivian, that life imitates art far more than art imitates life. And he explains this paradoxical expression on 840 when he says, um, For what is nature? Nature is no great mother who has born us. She is our creation. It is in our brains that she quickens to life. Things are because we see them, and what we see, and how we see it, depends on, how, on the arts that have influenced us. To look at a thing is very different from seeing a thing. One does not see anything until one sees its beauty. Then and only then does it come into existence. At present, people see fogs, not because there are fogs, but because poets and painters have taught them the mysterious loveliness of such effects. There may have been fogs for centuries in London. I dare say there were, but no one saw them, and so we do not know anything about them. They did not exist till art had invented them. Now it must be admitted fogs are carried to excess, they have become the mere mechanism of a clique, and the exaggerated realism of their method gives dull people bronchitis. Where the cultured catch an effect, the uncultured catch cold. And so let us be humane and invite art to turn her wonderful eyes elsewhere. And he talks about the French Impressionists, who are creating a new effect. Um, he adds, Nobody of any real culture, for instance, ever talks nowadays about the beauty of a sunset. Sunsets are quite old-fashioned. They belong to the time when Turner was the last note in art. To admire them is the distinct sign of provincialism of temperament. Upon the other hand, they, they, they go on. Yesterday evening, Mrs. Arundel insisted on my going to the window and looking at the glorious sky, as she called it. Of course, I had to look at it. She was one of those absurdly pretty Philistines to whom one can deny nothing. And what was it? It was simply a very second-rate turner, a turner of a bad period, with all the painter's worst faults exaggerated and overemphasized. Again, his claim that life imitates art... Uh, and the problem is that life and nature keep imitating bad art and, and the old-fashioned art rather than moving on as it should. Finally, Vivian sums up his argument on 845 and 846 with the following bullet points for his presentation. 
First, art never expresses anything but itself. It has an independent life just as thought has, and develops purely on its own lines. Second, all bad art comes from returning to life and nature, and elevating them into ideals. Life and nature may sometimes be used as part of art's rough material, but before they are of any real service to art, they must be translated into artistic convention. Third is that life imitates art far more than art imitates life, uh, and as a corollary, external nature also imitates art, as opposed to the other way around. And finally, that lying, the telling of beautiful, untrue things, is the proper aim of art. Now, it's unclear how much Wilde takes this seriously or, or intends for the reader to take it seriously. Um, but certainly you can detect a certain amount of tweaking of the comfortable middle class or, or upper class reader um, seeing all of the assumptions about the purpose of life and art and the relationship that had been passed down since Wordsworth questioned and ridiculed in this fashion. In the preface to, in the, preface to the picture of Dorian Gray, the uh, last couple of sentences of this preface again state out uh, Wilde's manifesto of aestheticism when he says, We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as, as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. Now, to understand this, it might be helpful to put it in context. Uh, that is, going back to uh, the Roman times and Horace, his argument was that the purpose of art is to delight and to instruct. And throughout the ages since then, one or the other of those two mandates for art has taken precedence. But throughout much of English history, the role of art to instruct was perhaps most important. Uh, that is, the purpose of art of a poem is to make you a better person or a better citizen or a more moral individual, um, make you a better Christian. Part of the aesthetic movement's basic tenet was that the purpose of art was to be beautiful, that art was for art's sake and not for any utilitarian purposes, not for any useful purposes. So here when he claims that all art is quite useless, that is not a rejection of art, but is in fact the most important quality of art that he can recognize. Whether the reader necessarily believes or, or agrees with this claim. In The Importance of Being Earnest, and in all of his comedies to some extent, Wilde reached the pinnacle of both his success and his talent in putting together epigraphs, paradoxes, and other witty sayings, and in entertaining an audience, while also calling attention to a number of cultural elements, um, cult cultural problems. This is probably Wilde's most perfect play. There's a little significant plot. Um, the plot that there is involves uh, double sets of lovers and a foundling who recognizes his identity, um, staples of, of comedy and farce from centuries before. But what is significant about it is the sparkling dialogue and the inspired silliness of the characters. The philosophy of the play, according to Wilde, was that we should treat all trivial things very seriously and all the serious things of life with sincere and studied triviality. But it is not just lightweight humor, although there is, there is plenty of humor in the play. The importance of being earnest reveals a lot about, and also ruthlessly satirizes, late Victorian popular values. There is no moral center to the play, only con conversations, uh, only conventions for what is done. There's no central st identity for the characters, only roles they assume. Uh, only masks and names they put on, so that Jack is also Ernest, uh, Algernon has Bunbury. 
Cecily and Gwendolyn both have secret lives that they maintain in their diaries or in their letters uh, involving imaginary love affairs with men they've never met. Um, some critics suggest that all of these elements of secret lives and double identities might have something to do with Wilde's own life at this time, uh, although his public persona was as a, a married man and father, he also was maintaining a secret life with uh, homosexual prostitutes and a relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas, who was the uh, a younger man who, who was the son of um, the Marquess of Queensbury. Um, and shortly after this play premiered, uh, Wilde's life collapsed in, in lawsuits and eventually prison term because of his homosexuality or, or bisexuality. There are a number of late Victorian works which talk about this idea of the secret self or the double life. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, for instance, has the uh, apparently morally upright Dr. Jekyll who wishes he could have more fun, who wishes he could pursue his, his interests without casting aspersions on his reputation. And so he develops Mr. Hyde, as a, in part as a way to, to have a secret life that could not be traced back to him. In this play, the style becomes the content, as the paradoxical epigrams illustrate verbally the double-faced, that is, hypocritical, nature of the society. Note that the play is called The Importance of Being Earnest, earnest spelled E-A-R-N-E-S-T, although the way you actually spell a person's name is E-R-N-E-S-T. And the difference between these two words is significant. Earnest, the adjective, means serious, solemn, grave, sober, humorless, staid, intense, committed, dedicated, keen, diligent, zealous, thoughtful, deep, profound. All of these synonyms from a thesaurus, all of these words for earnest are qualities that none of the characters actually have. Both Gwendolyn and Cecily express as their devoutest wish to marry a man named Ernest with the assumption that he would be Ernest, or at least have the name Ernest. Uh, and so there's a difference between the adjective and the name, in that the, the name suggests the adjective without actually having those qualities. It is the all surface. It, it's all the outside mask of earnestness without the dreariness associated with actually being Ernest. Nobody wants to be Ernest in the play, they just want to be named Ernest or marry somebody who is named Ernest. I'd like to play for you a clip from a film adaptation of this play, a 1952 film version with Michael Redgrave as Jack and Joan Greenwood as Gwendolyn. Ever since I met you, I have admired you more than any girl I have ever met since I met you. Yes, I am quite aware of the fact. And I often wish that in public, at any rate, you had been more demonstrative. For me, you have always had an irresistible fascination. Even before I met you, I was far from indifferent to you. We live, as I hope you know, Mr. Worthing, in an age of ideals. And my ideal has always been to love someone of the name of Ernest. There is something in that name which inspires absolute confidence. The moment Algernon first mentioned to me that he had a friend called Ernest, I knew I was destined to love you. You really love me, Gwendolyn? Passionately. Darling, I... you don't know how happy you've made me. My own Ernest. But you don't mean to say that you couldn't love me if my name wasn't Ernest. 
But your name is Ernest. Yes, I know it is, but... Well, supposing it wasn't, supposing it was something else, do you mean to say you couldn't love me then? Ah, this is clearly a metaphysical speculation, and like most metaphysical speculations, has very little reference at all to the actual facts of real life, as we know them. Well, personally, darling, to speak candidly, I, I don't much care for the name of Ernest. I, I don't think it suits me at all. It suits you perfectly. It's a divine name. It has music of its own. It, it produces vibrations. Well, I must say, Gwendolyn, I think there are lots of other much nicer names. I, I think um, Jack, for instance, a charming name. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Oh, there's very little music in the name of Jack. Any at all, indeed. I have known several Jacks, and they all, without exception, were more than usually plain. Besides, Jack is a notorious domesticity for John. And I pity any woman who's married to a man called John. No. The only really safe name is Ernest. There are a number of ideas satirized here, I hope you noticed. Uh, for instance, one is the Victorian convention of love at first sight, which becomes, in this case, love at first sound, so that as soon as Gwendolyn hears that Algernon has a friend named Ernest, she knows she is destined to love him. Uh, further, her confidence in the name Ernest suggests a confidence in earnestness, which was certainly a Victorian value, but here it becomes only a name, like every other value in the, in the play. And her statement towards the beginning, which is interestingly reduced to some extent for this uh, film version, uh, she says, we live, as I hope you know, Mr. Worthing, in an age of ideals. And, and certainly most Victorians would have agreed with this, would have assumed that, yes, of course we live in an age of ideals. Uh, but the reasons she gives to support this claim are, are the twist of the satire here. She says, the fact is constantly mentioned in the more expensive monthly magazines and has reached the provincial pulpits, I am told. Ergo, in her argument, the proof of an idea's validity is that it's mentioned more frequently in the more expensive monthly magazines and even in the out in the country in the in the, in the pulpits in the churches there uh, the more you hear an idea the more true it must be um, but I, I i hope you pick up on the fact that that does not in fact prove its truth but instead questions the very nature of its truth and throughout this play Wilde continues to mount up these apparently serious statements by these infinitely trivial, silly characters, uh, many of which tend to go to the heart of many Victorian values, uh, such as uh, politics and education, um, worth of a gentleman or a lady, the ideas of, of romantic love, in particular love at first sight, uh, of religion. For example, on page 866, Reverend Chasuble offers to deliver his sermon on the manna in the wilderness on the occasion of the funeral of Jack's brother, and says, My sermon on the meaning of the manna in the wilderness can be adapted to almost any occasion, joyful or, as in the present case, distressing. I have preached it at harvest celebrations, christenings, confirmations, on days of humiliation and festal days. Uh, any sermon that can be preached on any occasion must be because it has no actual content whatsoever, and it is merely words and forms taking up space. Um, Reverend Chasuble's... Um, apparent intent to allow both Jack and Algernon to change their names to Ernest at a christening is also significant because the purpose of a christening is, of course, 
through to baptize someone as into the uh, the order of believers in a particular religious faith, not merely to change someone's name. Everything here seems to be all name and content, but no substance underneath. George Bernard Shaw, who whose play Pygmalion will be re- will be reading later, was a, f- a theater critic when this play was first premiered, and although most uh, of the f- most of the drama critics were particularly enthusiastic about this great triumph of comedy, Shaw was much more hesitant and in fact saw the play as having something sinister in it, uh, in all of this hollowness, all of this emptiness of the characters. But he was perhaps alone in that view. At the end of the play, of course, everything works out. Um, all the, the couples get together, even Miss Prism and, and Reverend Chasuble, who had not seemed to be a couple before, or of much note, are, are together. Um, and Jack finds out that his true name really is Ernest. But again, it's E-R-N-E-S-T, and not the adjective. Now, this reading of the play as social criticism is not to say that it's not a funny play, that it's not a, uh, not a wonderful comedy, but it is to suggest that a number of concerns that Wilde had in other writings also appear here. Um, in The Soul of Man Under Socialism, for instance, a much more serious document he wrote, he attacked the dehumanizing constraints of marriage and the family and private property, which he thought forced us to act as hypocrites if we would be free individuals. Um, you have, uh, for instance, Jack, who, who assumes the name of Ernest for the purposes of, of enjoying himself. You have Algernon, who assumes uh, an invalid Bunbury so that he can get out of social engagements. You have Gwendolyn and Cecily, who make up imaginary lives. And, and it seems as if this most of the characters are chafing against the constraints of Victorian ideals of how one should comport oneself while wishing to do what they really want to do in the first place. And one can, in the hindsight of what happened in the 20th century, perhaps see this as the falling of the Victorian monolithic culture um, of the, the Victorian ideals, although presented here with a much much lighter touch than in The Soul of Man Under Socialism. One element of the play that I find fascinating is that Wilde was both an insider in this elevated high society culture. He was the most famous dinner guest in, in England. He was desired by all of the hostesses and hosts to, to come and speak at their parties. And yet he was also an outsider. He was from Ireland rather than England. He was not from a titled background. He was not part of the idle rich. He had to work for a living. He had to support himself by writing. Um, and so he is both writing about the culture that he knows and also writing about the culture that cannot fully accept him. He always felt his difference from others. He always felt that he was wearing a mask in society, uh, many masks often, a succession of masks, and sometimes he wondered what was behind the mask. And so I wonder what audiences seeing this play would have thought uh, in laughing at the characters. Do they also realize that they're laughing at themselves? One 19th century writer named Richard Gallion wrote that Wilde made dying Victorianism laugh at itself, and it may be said to have died of the laughter. Now, this witty and carefully stated uh, observation, which is in many ways worthy of Wilde in its balanced nuance, um, is perhaps to some extent true. Um, 
the fact that Victorianism was willing to laugh at itself suggested uh, an unease in, in terms of its uh, control of the, the mind of the people. And certainly it, the collapse in the early 20th century came quickly when it came. I look forward to seeing your comments on Wilde, on the importance of being earnest and the other works, and I look forward to reading your blog entries on him. Next time, we'll look at two founders of modern poetry, Gerard Manley Hopkins and Thomas Hardy. That's it for today. Thank you and goodbye.